This is the word of the Lord for you tonight. It's fresh, it's not stale, like Daniel said earlier. Above all these, Paul is saying, all these virtues we talked about last week, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. Skip down to verse 17. Whatever you do, this is the catch-all umbrella term, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your kids, lest they are discouraged. Slaves, obey everything, or servants, obey everything, everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, just working hard on the bosses looking, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not as for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So, masters, treat your slaves and your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be back together again. We're thankful that nothing has changed this past week in the, in the truest sense. Jesus is pulling all things together. He's making everything new. He's reconciling everything. He is undoing the sadness and the pain and the sickness and the tears. And he is making his world good again. And so uh, this speaks to how he's making our work and our family and our parental relationships good again. Father, would you send the power of your spirit tonight to help us to wake up, to soften our hearts, to help us to imagine something different at home, different at work than what we're used to. We ask this in Christ's name. Why don't you take a seat? Some of you have been around for four years. You'll be the only ones who remember this, but I shared a story a couple years ago from some of my buddies in college. One time on spring break, they spent a whole week, their intention was to paddle the Altamaha River, which is in South Georgia. And they had seven days to make it from my college town in Athens all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. This river dumped out into the Atlantic Ocean near Savannah. Um, it was a seven-day journey. They had to do 20 or 30 miles a day, just paddling, paddling, paddling. So they get on the river, and the first half of the week, it's great. They, they're making their, their benchmarks, they're where they need to be to get to the ocean by the end of the week and get back to school. But halfway through the week, things start to get worse and worse because the sky just opens up. There was like some low-pressure system or something that just stalled on top of them. And it was just water, 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 rain, rain, rain every day. And first two days, they're like, we've got to be making our distances every day. And so they're just paddling in the rain. All their stuff is soaked. They get out on the river bank at night. They camp. They wake up. They paddle in are miserable. But it, it got worse and worse. Because the further south you go in the Altamaha River, the lower the banks get. And the water was getting higher. So by the end of their trip, the water had overflowed the northern bank and the southern bank of the Altamaha River. And so Chris and Brian are in a situation now where they can't even see land on either side of them. And so they look to the left, they look to the right, and all they see is water over here with some submerged treetops, water over here, water here, and water here. And the current is picking up. It's swifter and swifter. And so 
They are water every direction you look, and the current is sweeping them away into wherever it's going, because you can't tell where the river was anymore. You can't tell where the river's supposed to be, it's all water. And so uh, they actually got to the point where they, getting in a dangerous situation, they didn't know where they were, or where they were going, and so the next bridge or other pass they came to, they tried to paddle over to the bridge and just pulled themselves out of the water. Uh, found land, hitchhiked to a payphone called actually Anna, because they were they had paddled right to the edge of her home down where she was. So they called Anna, and uh, she came and picked them up, and they stayed in her house the next few nights. Uh, here's the thing about that story that applies to this passage. When Brian and Chris couldn't see land anymore, when the water had flooded to the point that you couldn't see the riverbanks anymore, they couldn't navigate anymore. They didn't know where they were anymore. They couldn't control where they were going anymore. The current had taken them. And there was nothing guiding the water anymore, like land here, land here. The water, the power, the energy that river was just pulling up any which way. And so they were in utter chaos and had to get out of it. Think about this. Imagine that scene. Riverbanks are extremely restricting. They're limiting. They kill freedom in a sense, right? Because if you're on a river somewhere, I know this is hard for New Mexicans to imagine a river. What does a river look like? There's water with land on either side of it. It's extremely limiting in a sense because you can't just do anything you want or go wherever you want. But Chris and Brian are a testament to the fact that if you take away the riverbanks, thinking, about to be more free. These things are so restrictive. They're so they impinge on my liberty. I want to do whatever I want, and I can't go this way or this way because there's land there. Well, take the riverbanks away. Do you get more freedom? Well, in a sense, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. But is it the kind of freedom you wanted? No. It's utter chaos. It's dangerous. Uh, it's disorientation. You can't even tell where you are anymore. And so, if you want to, if you want to take away the restrictions or the boundaries, or as you could say, the rules of those riverbanks, and just have freedom to do whatever you want to do, you end up not with freedom. You end up with chaos, and you end up a slave to the current. You go wherever it goes. Riverbanks, when you really think about it, they don't take away your freedom. They facilitate. You can do whatever you want in the water. You can go this way, this way, this way, or this way. You can swim, you can float, you can paddle, you can fish. You can do whatever you want in the confines of that water. Riverbanks don't restrict you. They guide you. They direct all of that power, all of that water to where it's supposed to go, right? It directs the power. It directs the energy of the river. And riverbanks don't get in your way. They get you where you need to go. Right? They're not obstacles. They push you towards where you need to go. And so here's the connection to the passage that I just read. Many of us hear God's commandments or rules or moral calls like husbands love your wives, wives love your husband, children obey your parents. We hear these commands as restrictions, as freedom killers or freedom limiters. We hear them as obstacles that are getting in the way of what we really want to do. Just let us do what we want with our parents, with our kids one day, with our co-workers, with our husbands, our wives, our friends. Just let us do whatever we want. So we hear these things as freedom-limiting and restrictive. And we're in a cultural moment. We've talked a lot about this the past few weeks. 
identity, but we're in a moment of time where culture all around us, and us too, our own hearts, are screaming out individualism is liberty. You asserting yourself, you being you, you uh, doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it for whatever reason, me doing that, that's like the good life. We all want that. We're told to want that. And so limitations to those kind of people, freedom is everything, individual is everything, limitations to those kind of people is crushing. But the problem is just like that ever. Lift the restrictions, lift the rules, lift the boundaries, lift the riverbanks, and you have chaos, not the kind of freedom you want. You don't get to where you want to go. You don't know where you are anymore. You're scared, you're swept up in a current much more powerful than you. That's what happens, that's what happens in these riverbanks. These rules, these boundaries, these roles get lifted up or flooded. Which means this, and I'm getting to my main point, means this. All of these things I've talked about, the cultural moment we're in, the frustration we have when we hear people limiting our freedom, putting restrictions on us, it means that this passage is especially hard to hear. Right? Like right out of the bat in verse 18, Paul says some stuff that grates in the ears. Guys and girls, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 22 doesn't get much better. He says, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Um, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not men. Okay, already complicated, right? Already hard to hear. Add on top of that this. Personally, for some of you, maybe even many of you, your parents' marriage, your relationship with your parents, and your work situation are the three hardest, most painful, rawest, most confusing, exhausting places in your life. Your parents' relationship, your relationship with your parents, and your work situation. Maybe for some of you, just two out of the three are rough for you, or maybe just one out of the three. It's a rare person in the room who doesn't have complicated, tangled mess in one of those areas, work, family, or your parents' relationship. There's those of you in here, and that's a good thing. But for most of us, this just gets harder and harder the more we think about it. The passage itself is hard, our culture makes it hard, our independence and autonomy makes it hard, and your life experiences make it hard. To hear this kind of stuff. So here's my here's my encouragement. Before we dismiss Paul as this old-fashioned, out-of-touch, antiquated guy, we need to be sure that we hear what he's actually saying and not what we think he's saying. Uh, and that goes true both for those of you who haven't really had, had a hard life and those of you who have an awesome life. Your parents' marriage is solid. Your family life, you're so looking forward to a weekend with mom and dad and both work situation, it's not heaven, but it's not hell. You're like, it's kind of, it's okay. All of us need to listen really carefully in the next few minutes when we look at this passage. Because Paul's going to surprise you with what he says. You might at first reflex say, I hate these boundaries, these restrictions he's putting, but be careful what you want. There could be value in that. Let's look at the uh, let's look at the riverbanks in a sense for a marriage relationship, family relationship, and work relationships. And these are the, the four points here. We're not going to go through one by one. It's kind of all together. But every relationship that you're in, every kind of relationship you have, think of that as a river. 
You have the parent river, the parent kind of relationship, the work kind of relationship, the marriage, the marriage relationship. They're all different kinds of relationships. You don't treat your coworkers like you treat your wife. You don't relate to your parents the way you would relate to your roommate. It's different. And each kind of relationship you have has a different set of roles or riverbanks in it that keep the water where it's supposed to be. That keep the energy moving in the direction it's supposed to move. That get you to a place of health and goodness in life. Okay? Let's go through this one by one to make this make sense of this. I realize it's a little abstract. Let's unpack the picture. In marriage, what are the riverbanks that keep a marriage healthy and moving in the right direction? Help you know where you are, give you solid ground to stand upon. It's pretty obvious. Paul says the riverbanks that keep the water where it's supposed to be is a husband or a man who is not in the marriage for his own benefit. He's not a parasite who uses his wife for his own pleasure and his own happiness. But he's a husband who is not harsh or demanding or nagging or tricking with his wife. He's not a tyrant. He is, he is an he's a responsibility taker. He's not a, a slug on the couch. He's kind of letting life, life go by. He's not passive. But he takes responsibility. He takes ownership for the health of his wife, the health of his family. And that other riverbank is a wife who advises and contributes and counsels her husband, helps him, supports him, helps him succeed, corrects him when he needs correction, encourages him when he needs encouragement. She's humble, she's gracious, she respects him, and he respects her. When this riverbank is there, and this riverbank is there, that marriage flows to a place of goodness. It moves in the right direction, but what, ha- what would happen if one or both of those banks flooded over? With things like self, a self-absorbed husband, a self-referential husband or wife, a self-seeking husband or wife. This is where you start to see what's happened in your home life happening. What happens if one bank overflows and you have maybe a really gracious, humble, careful, loving husband and a wife who's just completely disengaged? She's there for the emotional uh, Whatever her husband can give her emotionally. Or you have a tyrannical husband who's really just there because his wife was pretty when she was 20. And now they're in their 30s or 40s and he's kind of over her. And they're the couple at Denny's you see that just don't talk anymore. They're just there. They just eat and they leave. And he's harsh. What happens if one of the two people, the banks have overflowed with just self-absorption? It's all about them. It's a very hard marriage, right? It's very difficult. But there's still hope. There's still solid ground. If you're on a river and one bank is flooded but not the other, that's still, you still have solid ground. You still have something to stand on. You still have something to help you navigate. It's not all chaos. You're not totally swept away in the current. What happens if both banks are overflowed? Both people have given up on the call to love each other, serve each other. They, they don't even think about Jesus anymore in their marriage, about emulating him. And how they love their spouse. They don't even care about they don't even think about that anymore. It's all about my happiness, and you're not making me happy, so screw you. And I'm just doing my own thing. What happens? Utter chaos, right? 
Both banks overflow. You can't even tell where you are. You can't tell where you're going. You are caught up in currents much bigger and more powerful than the two of you. And, and it takes you to a place of destruction. When those riverbanks are flooded by self-absorption, by individualism, by people insisting on their own way, chaos is what results. Family dynamics, this gets even harder. What are the riverbanks in a family, a parent-child relationship? So you have parents who love their kids where their kids are. It's very different loving an 8-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 28-year-old, and a 58-year-old. So parents who are adaptive, who love their kids where they are, as they are, for who they are. Who are humble, who are protective, who provide, who work long nights so their kids have what they need. Who don't take vacations to get extra money to provide for the family. When that riverbank is there, and respectful kids who trust life's probably a little bit more complicated for mom and dad than I need to realize, maybe I should listen to them. When this riverbank is there, and this riverbank is there, the water stays where it is, and it flows to a place of life and health and goodness. You have solid ground to stand upon. You know where you are, you know where you're going. That energy is harnessed and directed to a good place. But what happens when one bank overflows? This could either be the situation where I'll be, I'll be, let's just be as real and practical as we can. Some of you have been converted in the past couple of years. You're a Christian now. Your parents aren't. They've told things to you like you're not allowed to go to church. You're not allowed to go to RUF. Get the Bible out of the house. Don't talk about any of this at home. What do you do in that situation when that just self-referentiality, self-absorption, self-seeking spirit has overflowed one bank of the river? Is all hope lost? No? Is that a really, really, really painful moment to go to? Does God get that? Oh, man, yes. Jesus himself walked back to a home like that. His mother, his brother, his father. You remember the situation he's healing the paralytic in the room? You know who's knocking on the door outside saying, hey, get that guy in there and tell him to come out. Tell him his family's here. You know what, you know what message they have? Shut up. You're humiliating your family. Come home and stop this stupid little preacher thing. That's what kind of house Jesus Christ walked back to when he went home. That's why he said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Hometown is where people just see his little run of litter you always were. Is all hope lost if one bank is overflowed in your house and your parents don't support you, they don't encourage you, they don't protect you, they haven't provided for you, they haven't even been there. They're out of the picture. One or both of them. What was supposed to happen didn't happen for you. Is there still hope in that situation? There is still hope, but it is a lot harder. You need to hear God empathize with you in that, but also say all hope is not lost because of how you can respond in the midst of that situation. We'll talk about that in just a minute at the very end tonight. We'll do a case study on that. What happens if both of those banks overflow? You have tyrannical, awful parents. Or just parents who don't get you, or don't love you, don't support you, they provoke you, they crush your spirit, and you have kids who kind of just don't give a rip anymore, they're out of the house. You all know, this is what movies are made about. Maybe this is your life. Maybe in the past or the present, it's just utter chaos. Like total family dysfunction. Don't go home. Don't ever want to be around your family. Maybe you're estranged from them completely. 
These are the kind of things when the water overflows the banks because people have no reference, no bigger picture, no God who is empowering them to love each other. And it's all about me, me, me. When that happens, chaos ensues, and we get caught up in currents much bigger than us. There's a guy named um, John E. He's a theologian, commentator guy. He wrote this about what happens when families break down when parents, in particular, don't love their kids the way God calls them to. He says, if children are never able to please their father, if they're teased and irritated by perpetual punishment, if they're kept apart by his continual sternness, if other children around them are always held up as better than you or you're compared to them, if your best efforts are only met with the parental frown, but you're never greeted with the parental smile, then your spirit will be crushed and you'll be discouraged. That's the real life impact y'all feel. The parental frown, that you're just not good enough as your own brother or your younger sister or these other parents' kids. You never really measured up. You always fell short. There's not really a sense of encouragement there. That's the home to go into. This is what Paul is trying to protect little kids from when he says, children obey your parents. And he says, fathers, do not provoke. Don't pester. Don't crush the spirit, the creativity, and the sensitivity of your kids by just being a disciplinarian to them. They will become discouraged if you do. Paul's trying to protect us from these things. The last area that Paul says the gospel transforms is work relationships. And I need to say something here because if you read the passage, you're like, well, that's not what Paul's talking about. And we need to be very honest and say it's, it's difficult, it's a stretch to compare work employer-employee relationships to slave and master relationships. So what's going on here? Am I trying to sweep this up under the rug that's clearly here in the Bible? Realize this. Paul, people will say the Bible condones slavery because of this kind of passage and other passages. Paul is pastoring Christians who in this cultural moment were slaves. And there was no getting out of it. This is the system that every culture in the ancient world had. It wasn't necessarily a racial thing back then, it was an economic thing. If you were born without land, you were property. People bought you and traded you and sold you. Jesus has just died and been resurrected and poured out his spirit on this new church. People are being converted left and right all the time. So what do you do when you have people who are new Christians and they're owned by another person? What does love look like in the midst of that? Paul speaks in other places about the, her, the horrible brutality of slavery. His letter to Philemon, a couple letters after this, he speaks about telling this Christian slave owner, release your slave, this is wrong. He talks about every Corinthians, release your slaves, this is wrong. But Paul, just like Jesus, is not a political revolutionary who's come to kind of upend the social order. Paul is a pastor, he's speaking to people stuck in this situation. Paul talks to persecuted Christians who are getting executed by the government. Does Paul condone church persecution just because every time he encourages the Christians being persecuted, he doesn't say overturn the whole system? No. 
Paul is pastoring people stuck in a horrible place, stuck in a horrible system. He's showing them what loving your persecutor looks like. He's showing them what serving and honoring Jesus in the hard place you're in looks like. So he's not ignoring the horrible realities that some of you and us are stuck in and aren't going to get out of anytime soon. He is redeeming that place. He is letting the hope of the gospel come into a place you thought there was no hope. What is more hopeless than being owned by someone? What is more hopeless than being persecuted by the government every day? Paul is smuggling into these institutions gospel hope. And he's also planting the seeds for generations down the road for these horrible institutions to be overturned, which happened. So, that's me saying, don't hear me being flippant with this and saying, oh, don't worry about being really good bosses and employees. I get it, he's talking about slaves and masters. But in our culture in America, what's the closest thing we have to that kind of power dynamic and that kind of relationship? It's a boss and an employee. And so there's still helpful things we can pull from that and apply to your part-time job or your full-time job and say, what do we get from this? What are the rubber in a work relationship? A boss who is just, who is fair, who is generous, who loves and protects his employees. Not a boss who's in it to make a dime after off their back at every turn. Some of you are going to be bosses within the next five years. You will have people who report to you, whether it's one or five or ten. And you need to know Jesus Christ, your Lord, and your Master, and your Savior calls you to be generous and to love and to serve and to be just and fair with the people He has put under you. He will ask you, how did you respond when their marriage was falling apart and this guy said he needed a weekend off and you said no? How will you respond when he says, did you pay your employees enough to live? Or did you scrape by so you could have a nice vacation? He's saying, Masters, you will answer. I will hold you to account. Love those under you. All of you are or will be employees very soon. What's the other riverbank that keeps the water in the work relationship where it's supposed to be and heading in the direction it's supposed to go? Employees who do what they're asked and more, who anticipate what their boss needs before he or she has to ask them. Who does an amazing job sweeping the floor, not the kind of job where some other employee has to come after you and do it again because you didn't do it. Employees who don't steal time on the timesheets, don't fudge the numbers. Employees who don't take stuff that's not theirs. Employees who don't throw the boss under the bus and disrespect him in front of the other employees. When a gracious, just, fair boss is there with gracious, humble, Hard-working employees, thriving happens. Just like in the marriage, just like in the, the family, where these riverbanks hold the water where it goes. What happens when it overflows? Y'all know what happens when it overflows. You work for some of these tyrannical bosses. If you are this bad employee, repent. Serve your boss as if you're working for Jesus, because you are working for Jesus. It's a story about Oscar Schindler that's incredibly compelling. Y'all know the story if you've seen Schindler's list. Oscar Schindler was raised a Roman Catholic in Germany. He was a member of the Nazi party because if you weren't Jewish and you were a German national, everyone was a member of that party. 
You know what happened. Hitler begins to round up the Jews and systematically execute them, but also Hitler's at war with the world, and so he's got to make bombs and bullets and tanks. And so all of the factories in Germany are humming at maximum output. Oscar uh, Schindler has a factory. They make shell cases for mortar shells. And he has been steeped and raised in the Roman Catholic Church. He's been exposed to the Bible. He's probably come across this passage. He sees what's happening. It's a system that he himself is not going to overturn. Stand up to Hitler, there's a bullet in your head. And so Oscar Schindler, being a gracious, just, fair boss who serves and loves his people, found a job, even though his factory only needed about 60 or 100 people, he found jobs for 1,200 Jews, whether it was mopping the same one foot by one foot tile for a year or on the assembly line of making shell casings. He found a job for 1,200 Jews and he paid them enough money to live. And he protected them, he saved them from the extermination camps. This is a boss. This is the impact. And how many kids have come from those 1,200 survivors? Generations around today because of a just, gracious, courageous boss who didn't put money in the bottom line the first thing. What if he had been self-absorbed, self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-referential, no thought about God and his responsibility to the Lord, no thought about his neighbor and his responsibility to his neighbor? 1,200 people died who wouldn't have otherwise died. He might have made a lot more money, but all these lives would have been changed forever. This is how important this stuff we're talking about is. Family, marriage, work. There are God-designed, God-built river banks that Jesus is calling you to respect and embrace. They're not there to suppress you and oppress you. They're there to direct and contain your freedom so that it can thrive. So women, Jesus is not calling you to be enslaved to a husband. Husband, he's not calling you to just give and give and give and never receive any benefit in your family. Children, he's not calling you to be a doormat for your tyrannical parents. Employees, he's not calling you to be the oppressed subject of your boss. He's putting out riverbanks and saying, this is what love looks like when you respect Southern Bank and the Northern Bank, and you float down the river to where it's intended to take you. How does this happen? And then you finish with the case study. Only the gospel. What frees you to be abused by your boss? What frees you to be overlooked in a promotion and not slander everybody in the leadership chain? What frees you to go home to a week of Thanksgiving break with a mom or a dad or a family that doesn't get you or respect you? What frees you to endure in a hard marriage if that season comes for you? Only the identity transforming, life altering, grace giving, empowering gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the only solution that matches the magnitude of the problem. Only His power can match the power of these problems. Did you see how, how Jesus referential this whole passage is? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord Jesus. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord Jesus. Slaves, obey, every, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters with fear for the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord Jesus and not for men. 
Knowing that from the Lord Jesus you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time he calls forth from you some kind of behavior or act of love, he roots it in Jesus. This is a very different kind of life that every action of yours or mine is rooted in me. And whatever I want to do, whatever I want to do, it out of the consequences. It's a very, very different life, right? A Jesus referential workplace, marriage, or family life instead of a self-referential one. Let's pull all of this into a quick little case study focusing on parents and kids because not many of you are married and I'm hoping not many of you have horrible work situations at the moment. What does it mean to obey your parents and everything? Does Paul mean what he seems to mean that you're a doormat for your parents every single order they issue you follow? No, he doesn't. How do you know that? Because the rest of the Bible, Jesus disobeyed his parents. He went to the temple. They were pissed at him. Where were you? Why did you leave us? Didn't you know I made my father's house? There's other instances in the Bible where kids rebel against their parents because their parents taught telling them to do something directly against what they know to be right and true and good. What does obedience mean? Complicated. Obeying your parents as an eight-year-old means doing everything they say when they say you I'm not interested in reasoning with Eli when I ask him to pick up his voice. He doesn't have the capacity to do that. I want him to obey me. That's what honoring his father looks like. But when Jesus, when Eli, very big difference, is 18, what will obedience when you're an 18-year-old look like? It's a little bit more complicated. Now you're in an age where you're saying, my parents are sinners too. My parents aren't the wisest people either. Sometimes they ask me or expect me or tell me to do things that I shouldn't be doing. Get the Bible out of the house. You have to think about that. There might be a way that you need to honor your parents and go somewhere else and be that. I don't know. If your parents are racist or xenophobic or something else, if you bring home someone you want to marry one day, they say, hey, no, they're not from our tribe or whatever else. And you're like, hey, when, when the Bible calls me to obey and honor my parents, this is not at all what it means. Heck them. I love you. I'll respect you, but no way on earth I'm obeying what you just told me to do. What about when you're 28 or 58? Obedience continues to evolve. It continues to morph and mature with you. My relationship with my parents now is very different than when I was 18 or 28. Right? What does it mean if you're a parent? It means you don't treat... 18-year-olds like they're 8. Nor does it mean you treat 18-year-olds like they're 28. You cut off an 18-year-old? Probably not a loving thing to do. Does an 18-year-old have the capacity and the systems in place to survive and thrive? I'm not sure. Maybe one out of a hundred. What is a parent treating an 18-year-old like an 8-year-old? You have the same curfew you did when you were 15. And your parents are always just crushing you and checking in on you and asking where you and everything else like this. If your parents do that, if you do this to your kids, then you're going to crush them. You get the point. The way we respect, honor, love, obey our parents changes as we grow. So as 18-year-olds, as 22-year-olds, what does it mean to obey and love your parents? It means you have a continual, always posture of honor. Your parents deserve honor just because they're mom and dad, even if they were because it pleases Jesus that you would respond with honor and not turn you from evil. 
Does it, does it mean you obey everything they say? Probably not. There's going to be times where you have to respectfully go and help mom and dad understand why you're doing what you're doing. Mom, dad, I love you, I respect you. Help me understand why you're telling me to do this. Okay, thanks for explaining it. Here's why I can't do that. Let me help you understand where I'm coming from because I bet you're interpreting this as just me saying forget you. Like, I have reasons. That's helping your parents realize you're 18 now, honey. That's loving your mom and dad. It's not disobeying. It's helping them evolve with parenting you. Does that make sense? There's a lot of other examples. I need to stop. Let Tim Keller tell you the rest. That uh, message is on Facebook. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, how easy for me to say just when we got into the specifics. Let's finish and move on. Because those are the places that are so confusing to us. I pray that you would counsel us and guide us and lead us and teach us with our moms and our dads if they're in the picture. And if they're not, our family situations. With our bosses, our co-workers. And one day, our husbands and wives, we need you to sober us, and humble us, and transform us so that relationships will be safe for us again. So that they will flow towards a place of life and goodness and health and not be swept away in a current of chaos and destruction. Jesus, make us new people, we pray, in your power, because we lack that power.